0: That in my opinion, I think that's where the really great sort of innovative ideas come from, right? Is when we get unique perspectives or unique experience and people start building off of those experiences, right? So my experience as a biracial individual, thinking about interracial relationships, thinking about how do other people view me in these interracial relationships, led me to do research in interracial relationships, right? And I think psychology research really needs a lot more of unique perspectives.
1: Welcome to Preoccupied, today we are talking to Sakaria Awaluatumi, who prefers to go by Sai. So
2: Sai is a graduate student studying under Stephen O. Roberts over at Stanford University. And you guys, Stanford University is like the number one social psych PhD program in the country. Like, two out of 400 people like get accepted. So this dude is super duper smart and we are super lucky to get to talk
1: to him today. Yeah, definitely. It's really impressive. So Maddie, could you just give us a quick summary of what is it that Psy is researching?
2: So Psy looks at romantic racism. And basically what that means is that some Americans romantically prefer others on the basis of race. And uh, we can kind of, you might be thinking like, well, how can like romance be racist, right? Um, Well, if we're thinking about racism as like a system of advantage based on race, right? Uh, Romantic racism reinforces this hierarchy. So some racial groups have more opportunities to participate in interracial relationships than others. So that is those two things combined make this idea of romantic racism. So Zenon, how might we like demonstrate that idea?
1: So how Psy approaches this topic is by looking at people's meta-awareness, so their awareness of how others are aware of them and what that means for how others view them in a dating scenario. So he may ask, say, an Asian woman who they would prefer, um, whether a, whether that would be a white man or a black man, and most Asian women would, would report a white man over a black man. But then if he were to ask Asian women who they think that those white men prefer, the Asian women would report that white men will prefer Asian women over black women. So then that shows right there that Asian women are aware of the advantage that this romantic racism gives them in dating when they're looking for an interracial relationship. But then if he were to ask these Asian women who they think black men would prefer, Asian women report that black men will prefer white women over Asian women. So in that case, they would have a disadvantage if they're looking for a black man uh, as a romantic partner. So the meta-awareness here is that white men prefer Asian women, like this participant that we're talking about here, and that black men do not prefer Asian women. And that meta-awareness may even influence Asian women, Asian women, To have a stronger preference for white men than for black men, because they think they have better chances with white men than with black men. So like Sai mentions in the interview, all of this research around interracial relationships is very much drawn from his own experience, right, as a biracial individual with one parent who was Samoan and one parent who was Irish. And this sort of bringing of your own identities and experiences into the formation of research questions is what people in psychology sort of colloquially call me-search, right? It's something that happens a lot um, and that a lot of people are uniquely able to pursue where they're able to integrate their experiences and their identities into their perspective when they're creating research questions.
2: And this kind of makes sense, right? Because when we talk about you know, the scientific method or whatever, one of the first things that we talk about is, oh, you observe a phenomenon, right? Um, So it makes sense that this would kind of be a trend that we see in research sometimes, that when people notice certain patterns within their own day-to-day lives, they think, okay, maybe there's like a rule here, maybe there's a theory here.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that happens in all sorts of research, um, especially things like this that relate to identity. And this identity-based research is seen in a lot more things than just the context of race that we're talking about now. It's also seen in research on gender and sexuality and religion and socioeconomic status, on anything where you see one group of people with one identity being compared to another group of people with another identity. So Maddie, do you want to tell us about some of the different methods that people use to do this sort of identity research?
2: One way that some researchers measure this is through something called the IAT, the Implicit Associations Test.
1: So let's take for an example if you're taking an implicit association test for racial bias. What'll happen is you will be presented with a screen with a list of good words and a list of bad words, and they'll say, okay, you're going to see these good words that might may be like happy or joyful or things like that, and this list of bad words or might be things like... Um, evil or dirty or things like that so you're going to be asked to move all the good words to the left all the bad words to the right and you'll do this one word at a time so they'll flash a word on the screen and then you have to as quickly as you can move the word to the correct side right and if you take too long they'll tell you nope you're taking too long you got to be quicker because it wants to make these associations and try and bring them up so quickly that you don't have a chance to think about it Then it'll do a similar thing with a list of images of white people and a list of images of black people. And you'll be asked to, one at a time, quickly respond to each image, either left or right. The real active part of this test is where you're shown a mixture of images and words. So again, either one image or one word at a time. And you have to move images of white folks to the left and images of black folks to the right and good words to the left and bad words to the right. Right, So you're moving white and good to the same side, and you're moving black and bad to the same side. Then it measures how quickly you can make these associations and how many mistakes you made.
2: So basically how quickly you are able to respond to these prompts will tell whether you associate one group with positive words more than the other group. So if white and black are, let's say, left and right, and it's easier for you to swipe joyful to the left rather than to the right, this. Exercise would suggest that you have an associate, a positive association with whiteness. I don't know, white people who like get a preference for like blackness or for dark skin or something like that. I feel like it kind of gives you an excuse to feel like you're exempt from doing that work on yourself, you know? So like, I don't know, like... There's been so many conversations um, I've had with white folks when we talk about the IAT. They're like, I actually had a preference for black and brown faces. Can you believe that? Like, I'm so not racist. I don't even have to think about how my actions affect other people.
1: Yeah, and that's one place where it is really important to note that the research attempting to establish links between IAT scores and actual racist behavior is not terribly strong there isn't really a lot to say that going one way or the other on the IAT actually says something about whether you're racist or not. And that's been one really big struggle that this field has had to deal with, is trying to establish that link between, okay, you test this way, and you're going to behave this way, right? And of course, some types of IATs are more successful at this than others. Um, There's one article I was reading where they were really successful in predicting behavior when the IAT was about who you're going to vote for. And it was like a week before the election and it was, are you going to vote for this person or this person? And the IAT was very strongly able to predict that. Whereas other factors like race, it has a bit more difficulty establishing that prediction.
2: Right. And that makes sense, right? Because how do you, um, voting, everybody thinks that they're in the right, right? But when it comes to things like like prejudice, like acting prejudice, especially people are much less likely to be open about that, which kind of leads us into this idea of social desirability. Social desirability is a factor that sometimes happens within social psychology where participants want to respond in a way that makes them more likable, even if it's anonymous, even if it's confidential. people want to be seen in a good light. And this could be for their self-image, even for the way that they feel like the researcher will see them as they're reading their paper. Um, And especially in this, so when we're talking about things that have to do with uh, social justice, like classism, like racism, um, when it's more socially desirable to be anti-racist, to be non-prejudiced against anybody, right? Um, It can be, really difficult to get honest answers from people.
1: So it's kind of interesting, like how you mentioned that it may be possible that what we're seeing is even in the IAT, right, which is a measure designed to completely bypass social desirability by implicitly assessing people's attitudes, we may actually be seeing a social desirability effect.
2: Right. Like how strong is that? Can it, um, like how deep does it go? Right. Yeah. So some ways that um, researchers try to account for this is they will emphasize to the participants like this is absolutely confidential. Um, Your identity will not be revealed at any point. Um, And sometimes they might phrase the questions in a way that don't make it sound like a quote unquote bad thing. Right. So one thing that one scale that I'm using for one of my studies about race is like seeing about colorblind ideologies. On one side of the spectrum, there is, or one side of the scale, there is um, something that says, like, um, race isn't important to me, I try to see everybody as human. And the other side says, um, I try to think about, I try to take the context of race um, into consideration in all of my interactions. And both of those would sound pretty good to whoever you know, holds those those beliefs. Um, So an example of a scale that might incite this uh, social desirability effect would be if one side of the scale that promotes colorblind ideology said, um, I try not to consider race when hearing people of color's perspectives. Well, um, for a multiculturalism perspective, you might say like, I acknowledge people of color's experiences, um, and the way that race affects their lives or something like that.
1: Yeah. And another example of this comes from one of my professors, um, who does research on media and sexual assault. The example that she always uses for social desirability is if you ask the question to women, have you been raped? The answer you'll get is like 5% of women saying yes, something like that. Very low number. Whereas if you ask the question, have you been held down and forced to have sex against your will? The answers will be something like 20% yes, because it's seen as an undesirable identity in the original wording. And then they revised it to be more specific and less loaded with that second identity so that it's less socially undesirable to answer yes to that question. So considering the stigma around sexual assault and the misconceptions around what it means to commit a rape, it's important to ask the question in such a way that is unambiguous and avoids those socially undesirable connotations. So integrating principles of social desirability into our behavior and our answers to these questions is one example of heuristic use, which is one way that our mind saves effort and really just enables us to go through the world the way we do. Because if we had to sit down and reason out deductively every single conclusion that we make about the world, we would do nothing but sit and think. We would be unable to function.
2: Yeah, we'd be exhausted. Remember geometry and triangle proofs and all that shit? You can't do that all day.
1: No, you can't. You can't do that when you're looking at the news and you want to know, is the story reliable? right? You can't go through and personally search out and find every fact. No, instead you use a representative heuristic where you think to yourself, okay, so stories from this source have in the past been accurate. So I can assume that this story will also be accurate. That isn't the logically deductive way of coming to that conclusion, but it saves your mind a lot of effort and most of the time it works, which is why the mind develops those heuristics. So we just want to give that brief explanation of what a heuristic is and how it works so that when Sai talks about the omission effect a little bit later on, which is one heuristic that people use, you're prepared and you know what the concept of a heuristic is when he applies it.
2: Something else that Sai talks about is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this is something that we kind of use a lot in our day-to-day life, but like, what does that actually look like so a self-fulfilling prophecy at least from the social psych standpoint is when you set an expectation for someone or for yourself and then you act in a way that will meet that expectation whether you're aware of it or not so an example of this projected onto somebody else would be to say that you are a teacher uh you're a math teacher or something and you hold the idea that um like women don't do as well in math courses so because of this idea you might be less likely to call on girls when they raise their hands in class this then means that they don't get the help that they need and then therefore they might perform more poorly in the math class therefore fulfilling your prophecy that women don't do as well in math courses Another example of this is if you're a person who holds the belief that uh, black folks are unfriendly or um, abrasive, right? Whenever you talk to a black person, you might be more closed off, you might be emoting less, you might be giving off body language that suggests that you're not receptive to whatever they're saying. And this might cause them to be like, well, this person doesn't really care what I'm saying, so Um, I'm gonna like tone down my own like friendliness in response to them, right? And then this fulfills your belief that black people are unfriendly or something, but that's only because of the energy that you're giving out, but you've already fulfilled your own prophecy.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly what we'll see Sai talking about a little bit later on in the interview. One more concept, and then we'll lead you into the interview that Sai mentions really briefly, is the Monty Hall problem. And this comes off some TV game show whose name escapes me, where the host, Monty Hall, at the very end gives people a choice of three doors, right? And behind one of the doors is a prize, and behind two of the doors are sort of joke prizes that aren't really worth anything. So let's say you have doors A, B, and C. And you step forward and you say, okay, I'm going to pick door A. And Monty Hall says, okay, well, you've picked door A. Now let's open, just to see what's behind it, door B. And door B has a joke prize. And he says, would you like to change your decision? Now, so the question is, do you have better odds if you stick with door A or if you change to door C? So Maddie, since you said this was an example you were unfamiliar with, which door would you choose?
2: Oh God.
1: Would you choose to switch your choice or would you stick with it?
2: Well, because I feel like it's a trick, this whole question is a trick. I would want to say, oh, of course I'd stick with you know, the first one I chose, because that's what, in my brain, I think you're supposed to do, because that's my social desirability. But honestly, I would probably be like, you know what, I'm leaving it up to fate, let's go with door number, door letter C, and like, just, that's probably what I would do.
1: Okay, yeah, so the decision most people would make would be to stick with their original door A. Oh, really? Yes, and that, the reason behind that, that our psychologists have come up with is that people want to avoid the possible regret later on of having changed their mind if they were wrong.
2: Oh, that would be so much worse. It would be could have had a car.
1: Yeah, if you had picked the car and you switched and that means all you get is a goat, then I mean, what what was it for? Why did you even bother? Right.
2: But like how amazing it would feel like even more amazing if I'd switched at the last minute to see and the car was behind that door like that would be just
1: fireworks. It would be a great feeling. Yeah. But the thing is, most people assume that it's a 50 50 shot, that if you change, your chances are just as good as getting it if you didn't change. But that's not the case. If you run the probability, right, if you take some some basic statistics to it, it turns out that two-thirds of the time, switching is the right answer. Ha ha! I'm getting my car! (laughs) Yeah. So you have a much better chance of getting your car if you do switch. But most people don't take the time to think that through because instead they simply assess it in a very simple way. So this problem, as it's presented, is one that Sai discusses in the context of autism spectrum disorder, where they use it to study these people who think differently than the rest of us do, and see how do people with autism spectrum disorder approach the Monty Hall problem differently than people without autism spectrum disorder. So that and many other things that we've discussed in this intro will feature prominently in our interview with Sai Awolua So we're here today with uh, Sai Awaluatumi, who's pursuing a PhD in psychology at Stanford. Um, Welcome to Preoccupied.
0: Thanks uh, for having me. What's up, everybody? Um, It's cool to be on here.
1: Yeah, it's good to have you. Um, So to start off, could you just briefly describe your educational journey so far?
0: My educational journey is very, very different, I think. Um, Just to start off, I'm in high school. was not the best student. Almost failed out of high school um, with a 1.8 GPA. So after that, I'm thinking that um, education isn't for me. So I t- took a two year break for a little bit. Um, did some work at a grocery store as a bag boy. <clears throat> Found out that 775 an hour and 11K a year was not for me. I wanted something a little better than that. Um, so I went to community college um, and so that's when I joined the community college and was attempting to pursue, um, a criminal justice associates to become a police officer. It happened that the, that semester, they weren't offering that course. Um, but what they were offering was psychology and a, com- and communications class. And that's when that started. <clears throat> so after that, I uh, finished my associates. I wanted to transfer to the university of Hawaii and Um, tuition over there was, is pretty expensive and even with scholarships, it wouldn't cover it. So I joined the Air Force. Um, so I joined the Air Force for a bit, um, and that took about, um, six months to do to that period. And when I came back from training, I jumped into the University of Hawaii, um, studied psychology, communications, had a minor um, in computer science, um, and graduated. Uh, And then from that point on, um, took some time, did some work um, at a think tank, Asia Pacific Center for Security Studies here in Hawaii, and did a fellowship, the Henry Luce Fellowship Program, did some research in Korea, um, decided I needed to, if I really wanted to pursue psychology and make a big impact with psychology, I needed to go the full way and get my PhD, um, apply to Stanford, and and here I am at Stanford now, second year. Actually, maybe wait, wait, third, third year, going into my third year now. So, as you
2: were an undergrad, you were taking that first course. What about psychology drew you into thinking, like, um, oh, you know, I could do this? Like, do you remember that moment where you could see yourself really doing something like that? Like, what really resonated with you about psychology?
0: It's, it's hard to see what pulled me into psychology. Um, what I think will, was most important about um, that psychology course was the professor at the time um, and the professor was Jennifer Higa King um, who I still talk to um, now um, and something that was different with this course is that there felt like there was a different relationship between um, me and the professor and where I felt I felt valued um, I felt um, that my opinions were important um, and I felt like I could be I was doing good work in psychology like I was a I was smart in psychology and I think that's what really kind of gave me my first initial nudge um, and motivation towards psychology. But one of the concepts that I did learn in psychology um, that I thought was the most, like the craziest thing was a self-fulfilling prophecy. And when I learned about that um, and how I sort of applied that to my life, um, that just made me like start thinking about what else am I, what else in psychology, um, can apply to me. Um, how can I use things within that psychology to benefit me, um, learn about more about how my identity influences um, the way that I interact with the world, the wor- with the way the world interacts with me. Um, and so that was my real initial sort of um, push into psychology. Um, after that course, um, I just decided to keep jumping into more psychology classes looking um, more into what psychology was really about what because at in the beginning I thought psychology was more about um, looked more like what people think of psychiatry right was just sort of this counseling type of thing I didn't really know that it was a um, it was really broad um, and really research-based in in a lot of different um, areas so I took a lot of classes exploring that but the end goal was never to be a psychologist it was just sort of to I need to get my associates and apply to be a police officer. Um, and then that kind of, I kept using that excuse um, all the way into going to the University of Hawaii, like, oh, the end goes not to be a psychologist. I'm just gonna get my bachelor's and get a job, probably a police officer later. And that kept going. Then finally I'm in Korea and I'm thinking like, no, I'm going to be a psychologist. I'm gonna push this further um, and jump into a PhD. What's interesting, you had um, with a Scott Green span, right? I was listening to that episode. Yeah. And I think he, he was saying the same thing. I was like, yeah, that's exactly like, it. I think he said he was saying the same thing. And we're like, just, I'm just going to keep following this, see what's going to happen. Um, and you, you just end up at a PhD.
2: That's awesome. So like, you felt like, um, you just kept getting that, that feeling like I'm not quite done yet with psychology. So I guess the next place to go would be, getting my bachelor's and then it's like well I still have more more to learn so let's get let's move on to the next level kind of thing
0: yeah no exactly um it's like I'm not done with psychology um I want to learn more of psychology but I don't know what to do with it I think um one of the fears that I have with psychology and that everyone talks about is that like when you go into university, you tell somebody, oh, uh, I'm a psychology PhD. I mean, a psychology or major, you know, in undergrad. And everyone's like, what are you gonna do with that? And in my head, I'm like, yeah, I don't know what I'm gonna be doing with that, but I like it, you know, I enjoy it. Um, And so you learn more about what you can do with that. You get more engaged with labs, figuring out what that really looks like. And even even after I graduated as an undergrad um, with psychology, there really doesn't seem like anything you can do with a bachelor's um, or associates until you just full on commit to a PhD um, or, or a master's or something.
2: That is most definitely how it feels. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. how it
1: feels. Yeah, um, it that, that, sort of, um, <laughs> that sort of feeling as a psych major of like just following, following psychology where it leads and not really knowing what career prospect that offers it's exactly what led us to start this podcast. Yeah. Right, yeah, is both being two psych majors in university and not really knowing knowing that we were interested in the field but not really knowing where that was leading us yeah. exactly yeah
0: no there it's definitely a risky or it feels like a risky field because they, there's just so little um, concrete connections of what you do with a, a psychology definitely. bachelor's yeah, well yeah so you, you don't really
2: see it um, like you do with like the therapist on the couch and every sitcom or anything like that mm-hmm. you don't really see um, anything outside of, um, you know, academia or, or therapy, but yeah, there's a lot of like an amazing amount of jobs, like in the industry, everything like that.
0: Um, exactly. Yeah. At
2: this point, do you have like, like what is your dream job after all mm-hmm. this
0: is over? I think it's, it's kind of in the same realm of like, what, what do you do with the psychology <laughs> um, bachelor's? What do you do with the psychology PhD and in, in applying um, to Stanford, the only sort of, um, I guess, job that I seen or could imagine with a psychology PhD is getting a professorship, um, doing research, right? And so the goal was always for me to come back to Hawaii sometime, not in the immediate future, but eventually come back to Hawaii and do research that is important to me um, with a community that's that's important to me um, and getting a a professorship here. Um, But you get, as I um, progressed through, my PhD program here, I mean, sorry, at Stanford, you learn more about um, how PhDs can be applied in industry, how PhDs can be applied in, in nonprofit, and, but in many different careers. And so um, I haven't, I, there's still a lot for me to learn, but the, the goal is still for me to be a professor, um, yeah. do research back here in Hawaii.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, that's great to hear. So when you talk about um, researching things that are important to you, um, that's kind of where our next question comes from is what led you to your current research focus? What was it that led you to the specific field and subfield of psychology that you're working in now? Right, Um, so the field that I'm working in right
0: now, um, or actually the project that I'm working in right now is about interracial relationships. Um, And I've jumped around from different like subjects within my academic career um, from an undergrad, starting um, or looking at sort of like HIV um, transmission within transgender women, looking at how social media in Korea influences international uh, relationships between Korea and the US and China, looking at autism spectrum disorder and perceptions of reality. So I jump around a lot and sort of the thing that brought me back is that these are all very important projects, but they didn't really feel relevant to, to me, uh, to who, who I was. And so when I was talking with Steven Roberts, um, my professor and advisor um, at Stanford, um, we were discussing project ideas for me to work on um, during my PhD program. And we came up on interracial relationships, which is something that's very relevant to me. Um, I'm a biracial um, Samoan and Irish um, individual, and so my my father is Samoan, my mother is um, Irish. They both met here interracial relationships. I was like, this is this is important to me, and what led what led to this uh, I guess the question that I had about interracial relationships was sort of how do they form, um, and what kind of patterns do we see within interracial relationships, and so in Hawaii what a normal interracial relationships, I'm doing like air quotes for normal, um, is for like a Samoan Irish interracial relationship is that the father, you know, if if you see a child or a person like me and I tell tell them that I'm half Samoan, half white, um, they will assume that my father is Samoan and my mother is Irish. Um, But for example, if I were to talk about my cousins, um, who are also half Samoan, half white. And, they, and you look at their parents, their mother is Samoan and their father is white. And when you look at that type of relationship, there's something interesting about that, right? There's something that makes you go, hmm, that seems different. I would think it's one way and not the other. And so, I mean, you think of other interracial relationships, right? If you, if you maybe think of a biracial black, white um, child or person, you might assume maybe the father is black and the mother is white. Um, in Asian, white, biracial, you might assume maybe the the father is white and the mother is Asian. Um, and so when you see the sort of the opposite, it, sometimes it violates uh, those expectations or those, those norms. And so what Stephen and I were interested are, do those, are there interracial you know, trends within interracial marriages or relationships? Um, and if so, why, why do those things sort of occur. And so, in fact, there are those relationships, um, those trans in interracial relationships. Fortunately, there aren't um, There isn't a lot of data on Samoan um, Irish interracial relationships, but there is a lot of data on us um, Asian black and white um, Individuals and their interracial relationships and what you find are sort of um, the patterns that one might expect, you know, there are more um, white man, Asian woman relationships than Asian man, white women relationships. There are more black uh, men, white women relationships than there are uh, white men, um, black women relationships. And so looking into, you know, what, what could possibly create these different trends in interracial relationships. Um, we looked at previous research and things like proximity um, can influence this, right? Um, minorities um, people of color have more interracial contact with white people than they do with other minorities so this could explain why there's more minority white relationships instead of minority minority um there's previous research looking at sort of sexual stereotypes um, gender stereotypes you know where people um endorse stereotypes that asian people are hyper feminine um, black people are hyper masculine and so these stereotypes really disadvantage Asian men and black women, um, because this violates sort of our gender norms of how men and women should be. Um, So that might explain why white individuals um, are more likely to be in relationships with Asian women and black men. Um, And so there's a whole list of different, you know, factors that play into these things, history. Um, I perception of foreignness, um, preferences for white people, white beauty standards, um, there's a whole bunch of things. And what I was more interested in was sort of what, it, what is the accumulation of all of these things, you know, what's that forefront thing that people may think of or people um, might express and what that, that sort of thing comes out to be are racial preferences, you know. Um, You might see people express a racial preference um, in online dating, in person, in media. Um, These racial preferences are communicated in various different ways. And so what I wanted to know is, do people have explicit racial preferences? Um, And if so, do these explicit racial preferences create some sort of system of advantage within interracial dating? and that is what we sort of call romantic racism, when racial preferences do, in fact, create a system of advantage um, in romantic relationships.
2: What I really love about um, the questions that you're asking is this consideration of those like intersections of identity. Because I feel like something that's overlooked a lot is saying just, oh, black-white relationships without the context of Gender of the media and that that historical context, like you mentioned, especially between black men and white women, like um, you're missing a whole another part of the story. And um, so I'm really excited to hear like how all of that shapes out, and not just observing the pattern, but like really trying to figure out like why does this happen again and again?
0: Right. Yeah. And there is a deep, rich um, history and research. Um, yeah, that, that, that can explain a lot of the patterns that we're seeing, um, that we see within interracial relationships. Um, and I think it's very important to really look at these intersections. It's something that is ignored um, a lot within re- research. I think um, another thing that's ignored is that this um, overuse of generalizing, you know, sort of sam- samples um, within research, especially, for example, the research, um, there's research on why there might be more white um, White men and Asian women relationships um, and white women and black men relationships than the other um, gender counterpart. Um, and much of that research is is used exclusively with just white samples. Right. And so we really miss out on A, um, a lot uh, we miss out on what what are Asian men Asian women's perspectives. What are black men black women's perspectives within these um, things and how, how are there preferences or how are their um, perceptions um, used within these interactions. And so I do think we miss a lot um, the research when we just focus on um, one sample to try to explain this whole picture. And so with my research I try to um, get more insight into that and so I, I look at US, um, Asian, Black, and white Americans and ask them about their explicit um, racial preferences. And so um, just to like summarize what I found is that Asian, Black, um, Asian and Black Americans um, prefer white um, people over each other, and this advantages um, white Americans. Um, and not only do these explicit racial preferences advantage white Americans, but people are aware of this, right? Um, Asian Americans are aware that Black people prefer white people over Asian people um and saying black americans are aware that asian people prefer white people um, over uh, asian white people over black people and this awareness also reinforces this advantage for white americans because if i if i'm an asian person or i'm a black person i'm aware that everyone wants white people right and i'm aware that other minorities don't want me and so it's sort of this system of advantage that reinforces this preference for white americans
1: yeah, it's really interesting to hear how those those insights can arise from looking at more than just sort of the advantaged group in this system, right? Right. I
0: think um, one cool thing from the research that we did, for example, in our in um, in our first study, we just asked people, you know, what are your explicit racial preferences? Um, and we found um, results that are similar to what other research has reported before. White men prefer Asian women. Um, white women prefer um, black men, um, but what we also found was that Asian Asian men and Asian women prefer white um, people over black people, um, and black people prefer Asian people. I'm sorry, white people over Asian people, and so that was that. That's a cool finding, you know. Um, and it's not it's not um, through these sort of implicit um, sort of measures. This is something that we explicitly asked them, like, hey, do you prefer Um, white people or black people? Hey, do you prefer Asian people or black people? Um, Just straight up explicitly asking them. And even on that explicit level, these um, sort of preferences materialize. I think the coolest part about this is that um, not only do people have these explicit preferences, but um, everyone is pretty much aware of this, right? It's not like like these are just idiosyncratic individual preferences that no one knows about, right? These preferences are sort of materialized from personal experience and media, um, dating platforms. So people are all aware of this. So um, in our study too, we wanted to know we we wanted to test that right. Are people aware of this? And so we asked, for example, um, white men and white women, who do you think um, black men prefer? Do you think they prefer white women or do you think they prefer Asian women? And sure enough, these kind of questions, everyone's sort of aware of um, each other's explicit racial preferences. Um, so that's really interesting. It's not um, that having this preference is just something that you have and only affects you, but these things are something that materialize um, systematically and sort of influence how interracial uh, racial relationships are shaped. Um, throughout all of the U.S. One, point, one thing I, I want to say, though, uh, is that I love interracial relationships. You know, I'm not, I'm not out here trying to say, you know, interracial relationships are bad. Uh, we gotta get rid of them. I, I mean, I'm a product of interracial relationships. All my romantic relationships have been interracial. I guess, I, I, I mean, being a biracial, I don't know if, unless I've met another biracial who's Samoan and white, it wouldn't be interracial. I don't know how that would work, Um, or what's the terminology for that, but I love them. They're great. Um, I think they are a sign of racial progress, but I do think, uh, you know, racism is so intertwined and ingrained um, in U.S. society that um, it would be naive to believe that it doesn't affect our, our romantic relationships and interracial relationships. And that's sort of one of the, the, the things that I would want to document and, and, and uh, show within the research that, I, that we're doing.
2: The more that we talk about race, especially in this, like, very, you know, laboratory setting, you know, not this, like, natural environment, and as explicitly, you know, as um, you kind of, like, you know, have to if you're not using the IET, or whatever, do you ever find, like, in, now that we're, quote, unquote, post-racial, or whatever, this kind of, like, how does social desirability factor into how you ask questions, especially from the dominant group?
0: yeah, um, I think that's a good question, and this is one that um I've talked with Stephen Roberts a lot on um before starting the whole project was that i really i didn't think people would explicitly um you know uh say what what type of racial preferences they have um I think. I thought people would be really uncomfortable talking about it. So I was trying to find all these different ways, you know, saying like, hey, uh, let's try and ask them about percentages or let's maybe flash some some interracial pictures, you know, at, at subliminal times and have them click buttons and all these different ways. And, S- and Stephen Roberts told me, look, like, hey, th- these surveys are online, they're anonymous. Let's just see, let's just examine, you know, we'll just ask them a question. That's the simplest way we can do it. Um, We'll see what happens. So we ran a pilot. Sure enough, we see uh, these kind of um, preferences come up uh, and we see them. What's even more interesting is that also, um, we won't, I I won't be talking about this in the paper that I'm I'm pushing out, but we also asked for them about their reasons on why um, they have a certain preference. Um, And so within there, I, I would think that I would hear people saying, I don't have a racial preference. I don't have this. Um, but people are really comfortable talking about it. People are really um, comfortable talking about the ways and why they would justify the racial preference that they have. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. Um, after that happened, I was sort of committed that, you know, maybe we don't need to, to be implicit about this. Maybe we can just be really explicit and just say, Hey, what do you, what do you like? What, what, what are your preferences? Um, why do you have these preferences? Uh, and yeah, so I, I, I think it was an interesting learning experience uh, with that.
1: Yeah, it's great to see how the anonymity from the online format can sort of temper that social desirability, right? And getting honest answers. Right. Um, so I have a, a method question real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- when you ask this question to people about their um, interracial preferences, so is this like um, you first ask for uh, their race And then from that, you ask, like if if the participant is white, you ask, would you prefer a black or an Asian partner?
0: Um, No. So I guess the way that this, um, the way that this works is that we crowdsource um, our participants using a third uh, party crowdsourcing um, uh, platform. And uh, I think they just send the emails to people who are, who are of uh, a certain race, who are of uh, sexu- a certain sexual orientation, uh, that's a good thing to point out. Um, I'm only looking at heterosexual um, relationships right now, um, just sort of as the foundational part of the research. Um, and so all of those questions are sort of um, asked like when, per- when participants first sign up on these things. So the survey, when they get it right away, it's just, um, at least for study one, it's just right away. Who do you prefer, who do you do not prefer? Um, and they asked they ask that question. And then just for our sake uh, to document um, their race, um, their sexual orientation, or just their ident- identity in general, we ask those questions after. So it doesn't influence um, the responses in any way. Actually I think um, just to go back on the uh, explicit implicit thing, um, And maybe the social desirability part of that in our study too, how I was explaining how we talk about how we ask participants about others uh, preferences. We also ask participants um, about their own in group preferences. Right. So if the participant was a black man. um, The question would be asked in a way. What do you think uh, um, other black men uh, prefer. Do you think other black men prefer white women um, or Asian men i mean, sorry, white women or Asian women. And what you find is that when you ask it in those ways, you see even more uh, stronger um, preferences when you ask it in that way. So I definitely do think that there is a social desirability aspect um, within the research that we're doing. Um, it's just the social desirability isn't strong enough to really weed it out explicit or implicit. Yeah.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And then one more question I have is, um, do you think that these proportions that you're observing would change if you were to include, um, if, if you were to include an option for someone of the same race. Like, do you think that um, men or women of these different races would be more willing to enter into an interracial relationship in the first place? And if so, would that um, alter the proportions you're seeing?
0: Definitely, I definitely think it will. Um, I think the assumption that we started with with our research and based on prior research is that no matter what race you are. Um, everyone prefers their own in-group, uh, racial group first and foremost. Um, and there is some research showing that some racial groups might even prefer um, a white out-group than their own in-group um, in some cases. However, um, limited participants, we wanted to make sure we just get straight to the point of where we want, we're want. we only focused on out-group preferences and not in-group preferences. Um, just to test that, we, we had, um, in our first study, one in attraction rating, right? So we also asked um, participants, how attractive do you find, for example, um, regardless of who the participant was, how attractive do you find um, white men? How attractive do you find black men? How attractive do you find Asian men? Um, and so we also get insight into uh, um, how attractive people find their own in group and um, their out in group and when we ask it in that way the patterns still hold in which um white men find asian women more attractive than black women um white women find uh black men more attractive than um uh, sorry yeah asian men and vice versa with all the different um uh, groups so the, the 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 patterns still hold
1: so
2: um we're talking about like Romantic racism and at the same time thinking about preferences Mm
1: -hmm. is there
2: What do you think is the line if there is a line between these these preferences and sort of like a a Fetishization
0: Yeah, I think That's a really good question. Um, like is there a line between a preference and a a fetishization, um And I think there's a lot of debate on this on online um, within academia and right now it, it, it's, it's really up, up to people. I think, um, a preference, it's hard to disentangle it. Uh, that, that's, that would be my opinion on it. Um, I could call one thing a preference and somebody can call it, uh, like I, I'm fetishizing something, you know? Um, and so it's really interesting to think about how people perceive whether a preference is good or if it's bad. Um, you know, preliminary looking, I told you how we also had participants talk about um, talk talk about uh, perceptions of other groups and whatnot, Um, so maybe some insight on this. Um, For our study three, what we did was we manipulated people's beliefs about what other people um, perceived uh, them, right? So for example, if you're, if you're a white man, um, you first read an article one of three articles right the control condition you read about a ferris wheel totally irrelevant to race or attraction um, in the asian um, preference condition you read about you read an article a national survey that reported that asian women find white men attractive black women do not find um, white men attractive bunch of different ways just reiterate that so they read about that Um, In the black preference condition, you read uh, sort of the the vice versa, right? Um, Black women find white men attractive, Asian women do not. And so that's how we sort of manipulated these preferences. And what's interesting, um, very very preliminary, is that depending on who prefers you and who doesn't prefer you, there seems to be patterns of um, whether you would say, oh, this person has a fetishization for me or uh, this person just has a preference for me you know it's just it's just an it's a normal natural preference um and so that that's an interesting direction that we still need to look into but um it could be possible depending on the race depending on the person that they people will view it differently uh view it more positively or view it more negatively
2: oh my gosh that is that's genius like that's <laughs> such an interesting question
1: <laughs> thanks yeah, that's a really- to have worked in too it's it's interesting to see how especially in social psychological research right we can manipulate people's um views of others and views of others views of them <laughs> yeah
0: no i think it's uh the way i talk about this with with steven is like all right we're at uh you know the matrix right and i was like all right we're going down this rabbit hole we're we're just breaking in the matrix we're seeing this and we're going deeper and deeper into this um so yeah uh It's really interesting playing the sort of like these recursive beliefs and perceptions with people like okay um (laughs) here's this belief here's this belief that this person has and about you about this belief and just going back and forth with that and seeing um what matters and what doesn't it's very meta yeah yeah very meta Uh, that's actually what we call it meta awareness is what, what we try to discuss about it yeah
1: so earlier you talked about some of the different research experiences you've had in the past from uh, multiculturalism to autism spectrum disorder to HIV to all these different fields. Um, how has this sort of very diverse experience and research helped shape and inform the research that you're doing now?
0: Yeah, um, I think that's a, a really good question. I think first and foremost, uh, what made me go in all these different fields is that I was so curious, you know, it's so hard to pick. I mean, everything. There's so many interesting things out there and it's so hard to pick like what's right for me. What do I want to do in the long term? Um, And so I I, I, that's exactly what I tried to do was look and explore in many different fields. Um, I guess altogether, oh, I think one of the things that really benefited um, from this different research as cliche as it might be, it's just perspective taking, really understanding um, that the way that I view something, um, the way that I view a solution might be a problem for somebody else and vice versa. Um, just for example, um, in Thailand, I worked with um, reducing HIV rate, um, infection rates with for transgender women. And one of the the reasons that they're at risk for um, HIV infection rates is sex work. Um, And so, you know, my perspective, my uh, naive undergrad, you know, coming from Hawaii, I was like, all right, I know what we got to do. We got to get in there. We got to educate transgender women and tell them, hey, quit the sex work. You got to stop that. That stuff is um, dangerous and HIV transmission rates, yada, yada, yada. And so I, that that's sort of the, you know, how I'm approaching um, this problem, guns blazing, coming into Thailand, go, ready to do this. Um, but, you know, learning through interviews and qual- the, that, uh, these qualitative interviews that I did um, in Thailand with transgender women um, about sex work, um, sex work isn't necessarily the, the problem. It's a solution to a bigger problem, you know, uh, a problem of belongingness, a problem of Well, if they don't do sex work where else are they going to get employment because um, society in thailand does not won't accept them for their um identity won't accept them as who they are so how else can they um, um make money how else can they they work um an even bigger thing about that is that sex work um according to the interviews that that we had was a an area in where their identity was reinforced where their identity was valued um the culture and community around the sex work was um, an environment in where their identity as as a transgender woman was valued. This wasn't something that was valued in, you know, the local bank, the hospital, um, the grocery store. This isn't a there were there was there wasn't a sense of um, valued or belongingness in any of these sort of mainstream uh, of areas, and so. Things like that really opened it, uh, me up to really trying to understand how whatever population that, that we might be researching um, sees, an issue, sees a problem, sees an issue, um, how I see a problem, how I see an issue, and really understanding that, that culture and community um, to really ass- assess you know, the, 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 the problem at hand uh, more appropriately. So that's what I think I gained from this wide. I think more culturally, you know, that's what I gained from a lot of um, the research, different research experience I had was how can I find a better way to um, understand uh, an individual, um, a culture, um, the environment that this person, the situation that this person is in. Um, And so even the same with the autism spectrum disorders um, research that I did too was sort of looking at, okay, I know, it, I don't know if you, you read it on the stuff I did, I had them take, you know what the Monty hall problem was or is? The Monty hall problem is there's like three doors. Um, you ask somebody yeah, to select yeah. a door, right? And switch um, or not switch. And so long story short, the, the optimal decision for the Monty hall program, I mean, problem is to always switch and never stay when the host asks you to um, because it increases your chances of winning the game. Um, so, even for that, you know, I, I had approached that and be like, yeah, I, this is how I would approach that, but how would other people approach that? Um, and so, you know, looking at research about heuristic use and how, you know, the omission effect or something where I would feel. Um, Worse, you know, if I were to make a decision and it was wrong and then if I didn't make a decision and it was wrong could influence my decision on those things. Um, is it possible people don't use that. If so, who, you know, what type of person may not use those sort of heuristics biases to inform their decisions. And that's how I started working with uh, or looking into individuals with autism inspection disorder. So really just jump in and looking at different ways to understand a different perspective
2: yeah I mean it sounds like you've been able to step outside of your own experience um and like in ways that I haven't <laughs> met any other grad student who's gotten to like travel as much as you have to do it either that must have been um its own um eye opening experience as well um
0: definitely yeah it, it's it has been real really, really eye opening yeah
2: um and now like kind of full circle, finally stepping back into your own experience, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, so, exactly.
2: That's pretty
1: cool. Yeah, so as we're talking about all this research you're doing now, right, with interracial relationships and how that sort of steps back into your own history and your identity, um, that ties into a lot of what um, what we've been learning about in our classes, right, about how identity really drives a lot of the work that people do and a lot of the research questions they ask, right, because Mm -hmm. um, people are so uniquely able to draw from their own experience and use that as they pursue research. Um, And another thing we've heard about too is in the last few months, a lot of discourse in the United States is centered around how race affects every aspect of our lives. Um, so, one question that we wanted to ask was, "How has your identity as a person of color influenced your experience in academia
0: um, It definitely influences my my experience i 'm um, learning more ways of, of how it does experience uh, i mean influence my experience in academia um, <clears throat> just sort of for example, back in high school, um, my identity um, as being a, a samoan um, Irish biracial person definitely influenced how I felt. Academia perceived me, right? Um in Hawaii, stereotype uh of a Samoan individual is they aren't the intelligent person, they're they're the bronze, they're the big person, they're the athletic person. Um academia is not the environment um where Samoan individuals thrive, right? It's the football field, <clears throat> um construction etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. That's sort of the picture um, that was painted in my head. Um, that's sort of the, the picture that I endorsed in high school. And so that really re- reflected on uh, my motivation. That really reflected on how I thought uh, teachers were perceiving me, how I thought my peers were perceiving me. Um, and that stuff really um, just, just breaks down your motivation. Like, why try? Um, and so... In that, aspect, in, in that aspect, I think um, my identity really um, influenced where I felt like I belonged, where I felt like I was valued and academia was definitely not the, that environment and where I felt that. And so what, what is interesting, I think, um, on a, sort of a strategy that I did to cope, which I don't think is a good strategy at all, um, is because I am half Samoan and half Irish and half white. Um, I, I tried to pull more of my white identity. Um, and the ways that I would do that is, you know, um, I would think, well, what does an academic look like? And uh, An academic look like in my head um, is a white person, an Asian person, somebody who talks, um, who is well-spoken. And what does well-spoken mean? And, you know, and well-spoken means that I don't talk the way that I normally talk. I don't talk with Um, slang Um, I talk very what I what is you know considered proper Um, I have to dress properly Um, I need to look and be clean looking Um, so really try to erase um, and push away from my identity as a Samoan and so that's sort of how I approached um, academia in the beginning after uh, going to community college I remember my first day at community college I came in with you know, a shirt, uh, you know, a collared shirt, um, pants, nice shoes, clean cut, all shaven, um walking around, you know, trying to fool everybody. Hey, look, I'm an academic. Um, I'm not someone. Um, and of course that, you know, that, that can help in the beginning, but it's definitely not something that's sustainable um, at all. And so really, I think, The biggest way my identity, you know, negatively impacted my experience in academia is that it really made my identity forefront. Um, it really made me uh, conscious of how I needed to navigate um, this environment based on my identity. Um, in the positive aspect, um, you know, coming into my PhD now, I think now that, you know, I don't, I get back then, I don't feel like I need to, I needed to prove myself as an academic. Now, you know, I'm a PhD at Stanford. Um, I have I have a little more power. I have a little more um, uh, say on what an academic looks like because I am an academic, and so the w- ways that I try to promote that is promote um, work, the work that I'm doing, um, race related work. I think is really important to understand, um, really important to promote, um, especially in psychology, um, to understand more about how people like me. Um, interact with academia, um, and whatnot, um, more importantly, I try to, and this is what I try to do, um, is normalize, you know, uh, my behavior, uh, the way that I talk, the way that I dress in academia, academia. And so I don't tell Stanford this, but I, I try to make it a intentional, you know, um, effort to dress like me, you know, it, um, when I teach, when I TA courses, I try to make it address uh, intentional effort to speak like the way that I would speak, um, to grow, to what, to, you know, grow my hair out the way that I would grow my hair out um, in academia and to really normalize um, the idea like, hey, um, I'm someone, I'm a person of color, um, I am an academic, I am a psychologist, or I am training to be a psychologist. I am a scientist, um, so there's no need for me to try to act like what I envision that because I am that, and I truly, I, I really try to communicate that to um, the students that I teach because we do have um, a number of um, Indigenous, Native American, um, Native Hawaiian, you know, uh, people from Hawaii that take my courses and truly and really try to make them comfortable with their identity um, in academia.
2: Yeah. Um kind of going off of that. So in a conversation with my partner the other day, he's looking at grad schools and everything himself for psychology and he was like, you know, I wish somebody would just tell me like if I need to shave my head, like shave my afro, if I like can I get into a grad school if I have dreads, like, you know? And um what advice would you give to students of color who um want to make space for their cultural identity within these white spaces
0: yeah um dang that's a really good question um (laughs) you know i don't i don't have i i I don't have all the answers on on what's the best way um i can share my perspective on that and i definitely don't you know I mean, there. I mean, just to be raw about this, there does feel like um, your identity. Your identity is really important, you know, um, to how people see you, how academic, how, um, uh, academics see you, and so you want the there's this um, kind of a strategy where you play the game um, and try to fit in with this. Um, like I said, I don't think that that's sustainable. Um, and in the long run, you know, I don't, you wouldn't want to be part of a program that the reason you didn't get accepted was because you had, um, you had braids, you had dreads, you had an Afro, you know, um, you had long hair. That's, that's not a program that you would want to be a part of. Um, you know, the the happy answer that I want to is be yourself, you know, really promote, be the person, the individual that you feel that you are, push that out there um, when you're looking at these graduate schools. Um, but of course that answer is easier said than done. Um, and there are, um, ways you really need to navigate, um, your identity, um, with academia, unfortunately. Um, however, once, I mean, once you're in academia, you, you have a really, um, unique position to really shape how academia looks like I mean, um, even at the undergraduate level, you have a really unique position to shape what academia looks like, what an academic looks like. Um, really promoting your, uh, you know, building your culture, sharing your culture um, within academia, really being yourself within academia can help um, in making other people who see you more comfortable with with academia, being like, hey, maybe academia looks, uh, is a place for me because I see people that represent me I see people that I identify with and, and represent me in that way. Um, so more concrete answers I would say um, to, to sort of build a better environment within academia you know start start a affinity group where that we something that, that we've been doing um, start uh, <clears throat> or look for people you know that you feel you, you have um, things in common with, for example when I came to Stanford, Stanford's a really weird place. A lot of different people are coming in. A lot of different, um, you know, social and environment cues that you need to learn. Um, And so sometimes it can feel really isolating. Um, But I found a uh, Pacific Islander group, Polynesian group, Karaiva, which is like this dance group that we have. Um, And there I found a lot of people from Hawaii who knew, you know, Hawaii references and whatnot, and so it really made me feel like, hey, you know, I, have, I have a community here. I can use this community, build, find other people like me, and bring them into the community, promote um, my community here, and really have us thrive here. Um, so yeah, I think that's in my opinion. I don't know what's, what's the best way, but I do think we got to continue to do research and, and figure out what, what is the best way to do
1: that.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us.
1: Yeah.
2: Does anyone want to take the next one?
1: Yeah, sure. Just give me a second to take a my segue.
2: <laughs> behind you yeah. get a little behind the scenes look today,
0: uh, so. Yeah, it's cool. You know, this is you know, what 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 you two are doing is really cool, I think. Um yeah, it's just cool stuff. I, I tried to do this when I was in Korea. Okay. I don't wanna uh Go to too much, but I tried to do this when I was in Korea. I like filmed a bunch of stuff. Um, I was kind of to do a, a vlog and podcast. I had all this video footage, and then I came. I was like, "All right, here we got some gold," and I put it all on my computer. And then right at that point, I was like, looking. I heard my voice. I hated to hear my voice. <laughs> <laughs> the hardest part I was like that's hard. the hardest part. But like putting everything together, the editing part is crazy hard, and that's what stopped me. So I just shut the computer. I was like. Yep, this is important. <laughs> yeah.
1: So sort of in this context about talking about how we change the culture, about how we can mobilize academia and the people within it to produce change. Um, right now in the United States, we're sort of in the middle of a movement with Black Lives Matter. Um, what do you see as your role in this movement as a researcher and sort of um, the role of the research side of psychology in general?
0: Right. <clears throat> Um, I think my role as a researcher um, within this movement is to really um, sort of do the work that I'm already doing right now, um, document racism in everyday life in America, you know, um, and maybe in, in areas that we don't think racism exists, um, and really shaping <clears throat> that idea of what racism is, you know. Um, I think there's a lot... I mean, look at a discussion going on, people view racism as something intentional, um, something that only evil po- people do, that I can't be racist because I'm I'm a good person and whatnot. And really, uh, what a lot of the research is showing, a lot of history is showing is that um, racism, <clears throat> you know, people talk about it I- implicit, but it's really sy- systemic. Um, it's, just, it's sort of interaction between the uh, prejudice, um, bias beliefs that individuals have um, that interact with laws, policies, and institutions. Um, and so it's really this system um, that works back and forth. And so sort of like when, when I talk about racism, I try to talk about it as a system of advantage um, based on race. Um, and so really trying to uh, demonstrate that, really trying to document racism um, within research and really trying to show the importance of race, um, within everyday life. Um, I think that's my role as a, as a researcher. That's at least that's the role that I, that I'm trying to, um, play right now, really, um, changing how people see racism, where they see racism, um, and looking at ways to intervene, um, in pro-social ways.
2: So something else that's come up, um, as we talk about Black Lives Matter, as conversations of race have been um, happening at the dinner table and, um, you know, out with our friends, and also something we've been seeing a lot, uh, lots of conversations of race happening in offices of, you know, uh, DEI, diversity, inclusion, equity, whatever words you decide to use. What do you think is a way that universities, either at the graduate or the undergraduate level, could better support students of color?
0: one thing I think that the uh, university can do um, is what a lot of universities do is they have a diversity statement, right? They promote um, like, hey, we believe that diversity is important. Uh, we see uh, the importance of including diversity, the positive effects that it has um, in bringing in new perspectives and bringing in um, having more intellectual conversations, yada, yada, yada. We see, we see those things um, throughout everywhere. It's like, you can't be a university unless you have a diversity statement, right? Um, kind of, right? You see that. I think one thing that's important is really having the universities follow through with the diversity statement. You know, if you're pushing, if you have a diversity statement um, that says you're working on representation, but your annual demographics come back in and it's still 90% white, it's still 90% men, it's still you know, all these different things that just show there isn't really diversity being promoted here really, um, you know, uh, what is it? What's that saying? Walk the talk, right? You, you, if you're going to have that really commit to really, uh, pushing that forward. I think that what the universities can do, um, is increase representation on all levels. I think that's a really important thing, um, within our professors, um, our deans, um, our students, um, and really at these high level positions, having a, an increase in representation, um, could create um, sort of more representation um, at the bottom. I think that's one thing universities can do. I think another thing universities can do is really listen to their people of color, right? If they're, I mean, if they, with, with the current state of things right now, if they are hurting um, and whatnot, really listen to what are some ways that you can prioritize our, uh, the people of color, especially our Black students. Um, listen, listen, just listen and respond in ways to make people feel more comfortable um, in academia. And I think a lot of discussion maybe around like, well, if we accommodate people of color, we might hurt our majority students. And, you know, that, that might be the case, right? Um, where it might not be a win-win situation. But I think we really need to focus hey if you truly believe diversity is important you need to take a stance you need to uh, facilitate um uh, our the underrepresented students you know our our POCs our black students um, and really create um, an environment that's that's safe um,
1: for uh, people of color yeah so how has studying psychology influenced how you view other people in the world?
0: <clears throat> oh, um, I think studying psychology uh, for better or worse um, has made me more understanding of where different views are coming from, right? Um, and it's really that perspective taking that understanding, hey, my my idea of what a solution is, is not the same as what another person's solution is. Um, and so, <clears throat> Yeah, it it's it's made me, I don't wanna say empathetic, just more understanding of, of how people are thinking. Uh, and maybe um, I attempt to try to understand people's thoughts, um, people's pro- thought process a lot more. Um, so I take a lot more time in trying to understand that now.
2: Definitely, that's something Zenon and I have both observed, even just being two or three years into our, our undergrad is like every time, it- he and I are noticing something in the news or you know we get into petty arguments and stuff we're we're good friends we argue about stupid stuff um <laughs> it's always a oh but did you think about how or like oh well what it to play devil's advocate you know you're always able to um to kind of take that like different perspective we even see the, um, that things are more than just the two perspectives that we offer like this very uh dichotomous kind of conversations we tend to have for sure
0: Definitely. Yeah. Um, it definitely, and you know, I, I felt like I gained more of that experience, you know, when I was in the community college back in Hawaii. Um, and I was like, well, that's all I need to learn about that. And then it's just like, I keep learning more and more like about ways, better ways to do that. Um, so yeah, it really, it really makes me slow down about how I think about things. Yeah. What is,
2: one piece of advice you give to an undergrad who wants to do what you're doing?
0: I think first and foremost, I'm pointing at, at you, uh, listeners or viewers. Um, be yourself. Definitely, um, you know, your experience, y- your identity is is really important. And I think psychology research definitely can benefit from your unique experience. I think that, in my opinion, I think that's where the really great sort of innovative ideas come from, right, is when we get unique perspectives or unique experience and people start building off of those experiences, right, so my experience as a biracial individual thinking about interracial relationships, thinking about how do other people view me in these interracial relationships led me to experience, uh, I mean, led me to do research in interracial relationships, right, and I think psychology research really needs a lot more of a unique perspectives and people working on, um, sort of personal, personal research. I don't know how, what that would be called. Uh, oh, people call it me search, right? People, I think that's, that's one term people use, um, definitely be yourself, uh, more concrete things, um, that you could do, you know, to be at this position, make sure you join labs, try to find a mentor. Mentors are were super important to me. Um, Engage with with uh, professors on an intellectual and personal level. Yeah, there's there's just two things concrete things that that they could
1: Definitely. Thank you for that perspective with tying identity into research. Right. This is sort of tying back to everything we've talked about so far. Um, So sort of as one final question again to bring it back to, I guess, to bring it back to the personal level. Um, what is your favorite book that you would want to recommend to our listeners?
0: I and I got to admit, I am not a reader. I, I've just began reading books, right? So, <laughs> which sounds so weird. Um, uh, growing up, I think it's going to be a weird book. I don't know if I recommend it to it. I I don't uh, usually the books that I read are nonfiction, right? So the book that I enjoyed, the first book that I I ever read, co- from front to back was World War Z, you know, they they came out with that movie, right? And I, I, when I was working at the grocery store, I read that Uh, and I really liked that book. I think I'm trying to try to tie this back into perspectives. I thought it was interesting because you've seen different perspectives of how zombies are wrecking havoc on the world in different (laughs) cultures. Um, That was a cool book. I I remember like during work, I would read that book. I would go into sort of where we store the milk, hide it, hide there, open up the book and read it until somebody said, hey, we need a bad boy up front. Um, (laughs) So if you want to check out that book, I think that's cool. That's a cool book. That is awesome.
2: (laughs) Thank you so, 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 so much for such an awesome interview.
1: yeah, and for giving us so much of your time, too. Thank you.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry we went over a little bit. but um... No,
1: that's
0: totally fine. This has been awesome. It's been really cool. Um, it's a super cool experience. Thank you for giving me uh, the chance to talk about my research. Um, it's the first time anybody outside, you know, Stanford or, or friends and family, people wanted to hear about um, what I do, um, hear about my perspective. And so it's super cool to have that opportunity to share that.
2: Thank you so, so, so much to Sai for such an awesome interview and for being so open with us about your experiences and about all of your research. I don't think we have ever gotten to go that in depth um, with somebody's research questions before, and it was totally fascinating. Um, so I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that. In the meantime, if you want to head on over to preoccupied.com, if you want to leave us a
1: review, or if you want to drop a message in our email inbox to hosts at occupiedcom Don't forget the hyphen; it's very important. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the social medias, your favorite podcast platform.
2: And if you check out our website, um, as we mentioned on the last episode, I think we now have um, our episodes sorted into whatever you're interested in. So you can find whatever episode might be a good match for you to listen to next.
1: Yeah. And I think that's that's about all we've got for you today. So we will see you next time on Preoccupied. Preoccupied. <laughs>
2: Dun, dun, dun. And cut to after music. Yep.